This is the Hunt Quietly Podcast. I'm Matt Ranella. David, uh, thanks for agreeing to join me tonight for uh, chit chat. Um, I don't typically do this because it just gets to be too formulaic if I do it every single time, but you've been involved in so much and done so much and worked for so many organizations that I'd like to start by, if you're willing, having you give, give us a, a brief description of your, of your past. I'm sure I'd be happy to. I, uh, uh, Grew up on the coast of Connecticut, and uh, and then I joined the Marine Corps. And um, I spent um, much of my youth in a Marine Corps Force Recon Unit, kind of the Marine Special Ops Unit. And um, when I left that, I was a little struggling with a lot of things, so I fled to Montana like a lot of people did back in those days. And uh, I moved to Montana in 1985, been here ever since. I have uh, degrees in wildlife biology and journalism. So you, you after you got out of the Marines, you came to Missoula and then and that or Montana, Missoula, right? And that yeah, and that's where you pursued your degrees. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. The Corps helped pay for it, you know. Okay. And uh, and more recently, I got my MFA in creative writing, but I have worked. That was just a couple of years ago. Yeah, two years ago. That's wild because you're you're um. It's not polite to ask how old somebody is, but you're not. Uh, I'm 63. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You're not a non-trad student. That's pretty no, cool. Spring. And uh, let's see, I've worked for the U.S. Forest Service. I have worked for uh, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation as the conservation editor of their magazine. I've worked for Trout Unlimited, uh, the National Wildlife Federation. Montana Wildlife Federation, and I served several terms as the uh, president of the Montana Wildlife Federation back in the day. And uh, so through that, I've been involved in a lot of conservation issues. I also write quite a bit about wildlife and conservation and natural history. And uh, stint with DU too, right? Or not DU, TU, Trout Unlimited. Unlimited. Yep. I worked for them for many years. In fact, I was the first one hired for a a new initiative they launched years ago called the Sportsman Conservation Initiative, in which the the job was, uh, it was when uh, George W. Bush, the younger President Bush, took office, and uh, he and his Vice President Dick Cheney were putting in huge pushes to drill for gas and oil. Um, They were declaring it a national emergency, so they were bypassing all environmental review and just wanting to go into places and start drilling, drilling, drilling. The, no concern for impacts to fish and wildlife. And so uh, Chris Wood, who's still the executive director of Trout Unlimited, hired me and a handful of others to run this sportsman conservation initiative to rally hunters and anglers uh, in defense of our wildlands and try to stop or at least curtail a lot of that gas and oil development. And we did a good job. Yeah, so... That was what late nineties, yeah, okay. yeah, right around there. Yeah, and that was when there was a lot of discussion about drilling in Anwar, right? The Arctic exactly, 
Okay. But more specifically here in Montana, they wanted to go into the uh, Rocky Mountain Front up near Shoto and Augusta. Okay. So I, I helped organize cooperative efforts between the Blackfeet Nation and uh, conservation groups and landowners and ranchers and, and other groups to uh, particularly protect the Badger 2 medicine area. And we were able to secure permanent protection for all of uh, that land up there from gas and oil development. But I also worked in uh, Wyoming and Utah and New Mexico and all over the West on those sorts of issues. There's oh, yeah. uh, that with the the Shoto area effort there. I read a book by what's what's his name? You 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 know this person? Uh, I can't. I'm always forgetting his name. He wrote uh, "My Best Shot." He wrote. Um, um, oh, he started the Orion Institute. Uh, oh, not Jim. Jim Poswitz? Yeah. Oh yeah, Jim. You know, Jim was a. Uh, he died just a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, he was actually a good friend of mine and a mentor, and uh, kind of a father to me, actually. Um, a remarkable man, Jim was. Yeah. 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 I, I, uh, I, I hear so many positive things about him. And this book I just read of his, my best shot describes a lot of his interaction, uh, with various federal agencies trying to prevent that, that very, those very projects you were just talking about. I know he was instrumental in preventing the Yellowstone river from getting dammed at one point. He just sounds like he was a conservation hero with a lot of courage. Oh, he, he was just a great guy, and he was so down to earth, and he was one of the few people I knew that would be as comfortable uh, in, in a Senate hearing as in a, any local bar in Montana, and you just couldn't help but like the guy. He had okay. this contagious, contagious sort of enthusiasm and energy and uh, a likability to him that uh, and very smart with a great sense of humor. <laughs> yeah. Reading My Best Shot. The picture that emerges of a, is of a man that is really willing or unwilling to stay quiet about things, even if even if there's risks involved in terms of his job, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, he spent most of his career with the Montana Department of Fish, Wildlife and Parks. And uh, yeah, it was kind of a different agency back then. And then he was very critical of parts of it when he when he left. Um yeah, good guy. I miss him. Yeah, miss him all the time. I, I, uh, it, I feel like nowadays people that work for FWP are very gun shy. Oh, without a doubt, not just FWP, but I think uh, you know the Forest Service, the BLM, the federal agencies everywhere. It's uh, you know. Nowadays, you say the wrong thing or something people don't like, and it can ruin your career. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so that yeah, that there was just reading that book. It was really striking how he would go above his his superiors and and say what he thought and really weigh in heavily on all kinds of issues. And my friends that work for FWP, I have several of them. There's no way they would 
make the kind of unilateral moves that Jim Bossowitz would make. It's, he's just a different, partly a different time, I imagine. He, he was unique, and he pulled it off in a way you just really couldn't be mad at him. I mean, he, he uh, you know, one of my favorite sayings of his, he used to tell me, uh, well, Dave, I'd agree with you, and then we'd both be wrong. You know, <laughs> help a laugh. Not. I remember one time in a real contentious meeting with the Montana Wildlife Federation, and people were getting upset. He, 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 and I was the president. And I was getting a little upset by how contentious everything. Him telling me, uh, "Well, Dave, if we all agreed, there'd only need to be one of us." You know, I mean, so he had this <laughs> sort of Will Rogers sort of wisdom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wrote the introduction to one of his books, and it's kind of a tribute to him. I want to go back and find that again. Oh, okay. It yeah. was also sort of a tribute to Jim. Um, yeah. Tell you, um, this kind of ties into maybe our discussion coming up. But when I was still pretty young and new to Montana, I remember sitting down and having a couple beers with Jim, and it was before I knew him real well. And I said, uh, you know, Jim, it's odd. I just don't feel like I fit in. I don't really fit in with the environmental crowd all the time. And even though I'm an avid hunter, I don't really fit in with the hunting crowd all the time. And uh, he kind of smiled and he looked at me and he said, you know why, Dave? And he, he sort of grinned and leaned in and toned down his voice like it was a big secret. He said, that's because you and I, we're Leopoldians and there aren't many of us around. Mm. And I've, I've used that ever since, you know, regarding, of course, Aldo Leopold and his teachings. And um, and Jim is truly probably the most Leopoldian person I had ever had the pleasure of meeting and talking to. Mm. Similar mindset. It's been fascinating to hear a discussion between uh, Jim oh. Boswitz and Aldo Leopold. <laughs> yeah. That'd be a podcast for you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't do much talking during that yeah, I'd keep my mouth shut on that one. Maybe you and I could script it out, like, and just uh, we could refresh our memories on what they wrote, and like, you could play one and I could play the other. There you go. <laughs> I'm actually doing something similar to that right now, where this guy that I've met through the podcast, he he and I are scripting out um, a podcast where I play myself. And he plays like a very loud, media-driven hunter, and um, and we're gonna do it like like a big-time wrestling kind of a motif oh, to it. Wow, that'll be fascinating. You, there, there's like a name. It. There's a word for that, like where you pretend where you suspend your disbelief and you're like willing to go along with something, you know, it's fake. That's applied strictly to big time wrestling. It's called K-Fab. K-A-Y. I hadn't either until he told me it. K-A-Y-F-A-B-E. So yeah. We'll look that up later. Yeah. It'll be our K-Fab episode. What made you go back to school? I mean, you're, you're already, (laughs) you're already a very good writer. You know, well, thank you. I appreciate that. But, um, you know, it's a long story, but I kind of had a falling out with the hunting conservation world and uh, lost my job with the Montana Wildlife Federation, um, primarily because of my views on 
predators, particularly wolves and grizzlies, differ quite a bit from the hunting community. And um, so a lot of my views were no longer in line with those groups. And um, and after that, I kind of fell into some other issues and depression and other things. And I just was taking little jobs here and there, like working graveyard shift at a gas station. And uh, Yeah, when, I, when I first interacted with you, you were driving a bus. I still drive a bus now. Okay. Because when you're a writer, you have to have a real job to make money, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. I'll tell you how that happened. So I um, I had always wanted to go get my MFA. So I decided to go for it. I was in a good position in life to go for it. I thought, uh, you know, it can't hurt to continue studying the craft and learning what I can. And the school had a good reputation. And I was living here and not doing much else. So I, I went back there and got my MFA. But while I was in the program, I took a job as a a driver for this, the University of Montana's bus system. It's called UDASH. And uh, it's one of the best paying student jobs at the university. You have to be a student, you know, to get the oh, job. I see. And they put you through the training and they teach you to drive the bus. And I and I ended up kind of liking it, you know. it's uh, Are you like taking sports job. teams to events? Is that what it is? Uh, no. Primarily what we did was uh, um, there's like student housing and there's parts of Missoula where students a lot of students live in apartment complexes. So we drove, you know, we just had a route like a regular city bus route to bring students to the university, to the campus and back. But we also occasionally did, you know, sports teams and we, we brought people to practices and back, but mostly it was catering to uh, students who lived off campus um, because parking on the university of Montana campus is not only expensive, but it can be very difficult to find parking. So a lot of students choose to use the bus service because it was, uh, well, it's paid for by student fees, so they don't have to pay to ride it um, once they pay those student fees. And I liked it enough that after I graduated, uh, I'm working on some writing projects, but I um, I just kind of moved over to the city bus system, which is called Mountain Line, a play on Mount Lion. And, uh, okay. you know, it's an easy job. I drive in circles and sit on my butt and drive in circles and get paid pretty well for it. So and you could probably think about your writing. And I do quite a bit to the point where it's distracting. I, I often make, you know, wrong turns and have to tell my pastor, sorry, I made a wrong turn. I'll fix that. We'll go back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like a spaced out bus driver. <laughs> picture, picture Mr. Magoo driving a bus. I'm probably going to get fired now for saying all this, but <laughs> and I do, uh, I read a lot while I'm, not while I'm actually driving, but you know, you have breaks here and there. And uh, yeah, I bring along good books and a notepad. And I think I do think a lot while I'm driving. It's, it's that kind of job. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds wonderful to me, given how stressful my job is. Um, so, okay. Now I have two things I want to ask you about. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there'll be other things will come up. I, I'm definitely interested in hearing out, hearing more about your falling out with the conservation community. Like, I, I gather that you... Well, the hunting conservation, anyway. Yeah, hunting conservation community, right. I gather that you are more concerned about predators and, than, and less warm to the idea of hunting predators than most folks you were working with. Is that what the yeah. risk was? Kind of. Uh, on a bigger picture, if it's okay for me to just kind of ramble a bit. 
You go for it. Yeah. You know, um, on a bigger picture. I have all kinds of problems with some of the nonprofits. <laughs> so, you, you know, we have this system of wildlife management in the country that everybody likes to talk about called the North American model of wildlife conservation. And folks like the Rocky Mountain Up Foundation, they call it, you know, the greatest system in the history of the universe and the world and beyond. And you always hear all this. And of course, when I was younger, I never heard of this North American model of wildlife management because it didn't really come along till about 2000. The first time I ever heard of it was when Valerius Geist, who was a, a biologist and scientist up in Canada, who I had become friends with. And I was having dinner with he and his wife, and he was running the idea. If basically he and a couple other guys, I think Shane Mahoney and another guy named John something who was with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, John Organ or something like that. Mm -hmm. Down and develop these principles that they felt were what made North wildlife conservation in North America successful. You know, and there's like seven principles. I'm sure you're familiar with them. Mm -hmm. I actually jotted some of them down that, that wildlife is a public trust, that we eliminate the commercial markets for wildlife, uh, that wildlife needs to be allocated by law, that wildlife can only be killed for a legitimate purpose, um, that it's an international resource that is directed by science and that it's democratic in nature. And I started questioning a lot of it. This is actually one of the conversations. You I remember started questioning whether we were adhering to it or whether it was correct to adhere to it. The, the whole system, it seemed hypocritical to me because um, let, let's go to wolves. We're slaughtering wolves in Idaho. They're paying bounty hunters to go into the Frank church river of no turn wilderness to eliminate entire packs of wolves. They're shooting wolves from the air. They're declaring wolves a national emergency. Um, they've just gone hysterical about wolves, you know, and most of the management is based on social pressure that's based on lies and myths, myths like there are uh, different species that, you know, were introduced here that didn't originally exist here. Bullshit. Can I swear here? <laughs> yes. Can't. Thank you. Sorry about that. And then, uh, if you if you hadn't sworn by the end of the recording, I would have made you swear a few times. Well, you know, I'm a marine, so it happens. Oh. And uh, that wolves, you know, kill just for the fun of it. That wolves are uh, annihilating our elk populations. Uh, one of the directors of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation called wolves the worst ecological disaster since the decimation of bison. And this was all going on about this time period. And I started thinking something's wrong here because that's not based on science. That's not killing animals for uh, for legitimate purpose, unless killing for fun and entertainment counts as a legitimate purpose. That's not uh, the public trust. That's not democracy, including everybody in, in wildlife. So I started kind of questioning the whole system. Um, you know, hunters, not quite as much as hunters say, hunters like to say we, we pay for wildlife conservation. We don't. When you figure in uh, federal lands and federal management and other things, we pay for about 6% of conservation in this country. Oh, wow. That's an If you can call figure. it conservation. So how did you arrive at that? Did you like do the math yourself? No, I just read quite a bit about this. If you look at it, um, and let me, let me get back to that other thing. So, and now they want to do the same with grizzlies. You know, they want to open up hunting seasons for grizzlies, not based on sound science, but based on social pressure, mostly from hunters 
who want to kill grizzlies. And again, they're saying things that are scientifically unsound, like killing grizzlies will make them more fearful of us. Killing grizzlies will reduce conflict between humans and grizzlies. None of that is true. None of that is scientifically verifiable. In fact, most of the science we do have shows it's not true. So, so I started. What, what is the? Uh, what do you? Th- what do you think the impact of wolves has been on elk in Idaho? Well, and now Montana's having similar policies, have you seen? Yeah. You know, you can shoot wolves at night on private lands, right. you can hunt them from the air, you can kill up to 20 wolves a year. And none of that is based on science. None of it uh, fits within the North American model. Okay. Well, to, to fit. To so, fit. my personal experience, I, I can tell you, is uh, where I hunt elk. And I'll just say it's on the Bitterroot National Forest within a wilderness area. And I've been hunting elk there now for 36 years and have killed a lot of elk back there. And I was hunting elk back there before wolves were introduced. And I've been hunting there, I guess, almost just as long since wolves were introduced. And I did notice changes. I noticed the hunting became more challenging for me. Um, The elk bunched up more. They were more alert because they're being... uh, you know, they're, they're more alert because they're hunted all year now by wolves. And um, safety comes in numbers. So I notice they bunch up a lot. They move around a lot more because they're pushed around in different habitats. I might go into where I traditionally find a lot of elk in the fall, and I could tell they had been there maybe a week or two earlier, but they're not there now, so i got to go elsewhere to look for them. And, um, and then I also started thinking, well, this is how elk evolved. Everything we love about elk, or I should say everything I love about elk, their speed, their agility, their wariness, you know, co-evolved with wolves. Wolves shaped what elk are. And uh, I'm not only grateful for that, but I just think it's cool to be able to have such a wild experience and hunt in an ecosystem where grizzlies and wolves still roam too, you know. We're not necessarily the top predator anymore. Yeah, I was so to answer I your used question. To hunt in the southern Madison quite a bit, and and there was this guy I used to run into right down there, and he said he told me one time that hunting in a, on a on a mountain without a grizzly on it is like is like kissing your sister. I love it. <laughs> you know that actually sounds like something Jim Bosowitz would say, but I like that. That's good. So yeah, you know I like wildness. I love wilderness. I love everything about the wilds and and healthy functioning ecosystems. And so to me, yeah, the hunting became more challenging, but I still managed to find and kill elk and the numbers show there's still plenty of elk. They're not, uh, you know, back to the former director of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Um, wolves didn't annihilate our elk populations like everybody predicted. In fact, they're begging people to shoot elk in a lot of places. We got a lot of elk. Um, is there, would there ever be a circumstance under which you'd be okay with hunting wolves? Oh, I think, um, okay, this is a tough one, but yeah, there is for management purposes, for where maybe depredation has become out of control and unacceptable. The problem with wolves or managing wolves, and again, this gets back to the North American model of wildlife management and our claim by us hunters that, you know, uh, science dictates what we do. Um, 
And there's people who say, oh, we need to manage wolves like we manage elk. Well, the way we manage species like elk is by understanding their ecology and their behavior and their breeding behavior and their social structures. And we manage them by what we know, right? So it's sustainable. Here's what we know about wolves. If a particular dominant wolf is killed, it can throw, uh, I mean, they evolved as a main predator with not a lot of predation. So you kill the a particular wolf. I know scientists don't like to use the term uh, alpha anymore because there can be different dominant wolves. One wolf can be dominant in the hunting. One can be dominant in the breeding. It changes a lot of their social structure and it can cause a lot of disruption in the pack. So they break up. They fight. Sometimes they kill each other. They break into separate packs. You can end up with more wolves. You know, yeah, I've heard similar wolves. things about coyotes. So what happens if we go out and just let hunters start killing all the wolves they want? And, and same with coyotes, exactly. We could end up exasperating the problems managers think they're taking care of. But I guess it makes the hunters happy because they think they're doing something. They think they're killing these evil animals that are eating all their elk. So, again, this ties back to that other question I never really finished, which I started looking at all this, and it really started disturbing me. And I started realizing that the way our current system of wildlife management is set up is that hunters pay for most of the state wildlife agencies. On average, hunters pay about 35% of state wildlife agency budgets. In Montana, it's higher. It's set like 55%. Through hunting and fishing licenses and excise taxes that come out of uh, Pittman-Robertson funds and Dingle-Johnson funds. Oh, I would have um, thought that'd be the whole kitty. Where's the other 45% come from? Uh, general funds, general taxpayer funds. Oh, oh really? Okay. Okay. Yeah. okay. That's why when you look at the big picture from a federal scale, if you look at uh, the cost of us taxpayers funding, you know, Forest Service land, BLM land, um, National Park Service land, U.S. Fish and Wildlife land, those lands that we all pay for, the total contribution of hunters comes down to about 6% of conservation. That's wild. So we do. I mean, we fund a lot of conservation. And then, don't we, maybe we can get into this later. But then we got to look at what they claim as conservation. Yeah, you know? <laughs> I mean, is killing wolves conservation? Is killing is having a killing contest for coyotes? Is that conservation? Is killing prairie dogs for fun and entertainment conservation? Is putting non-native pheasants on our habitat is that conservation? Non-native. Okay, yeah, but, but, but are, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, but it's but it's it's okay. I agree, but that's not. Those aren't the things that the that say fish, wildlife, and parks do that they would call conservation, right? Oh yeah, because well, hunters say that here's how much we contribute to the state wildlife agencies, and then they say they call that conservation. I see. Okay. So the Pittman Robertson funds that go to our state wildlife agencies, they count that as conservation. But we know not all of it goes to conservation. A lot of it goes to administrative costs, uh, um, recruiting and training new hunters, R3 yeah. program. As you know about. There's a little um, bit of daylight between you and Jim Pawsowitz, I'd say. Well, he was a big, Not he was not only a close friend, but he was a real mentor. And uh, 
Well, he wrote he I in one of his books he wrote something uh along the lines of many people realize that humans wouldn't be around if it wasn't for wildlife. Oh yeah. Um, but they don't realize that wildlife wouldn't be around if it wasn't for hunters. So that seems a little bit different than your perspective. To well, me. no, because um, there is no doubt that hunters in North America played a huge role in conservation, going back to Theodore Roosevelt even before him. Yeah, see, where, uh, I, where, I, where I come down on this more and more is that there was a time where hunters played an indispensable role in bringing back species from the brink. Exactly. And I like after the after we uh, things just got decimated by sport hunting in the twenties and thirties, uh, or even earlier, you know, the turn of the century, that commercial market hunting, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that this that now, I mean, now this is how all these orcs uh, justify in part their rec hunter recruitment efforts is. Hunting is conservation. We need more hunters to fund conservation. And and I think, they, and they're pointing back to all, like when we did need more funding for, <laughs> for conservation. For, from my perspective, bringing more hunters in now does not equate as conservation. No, and, not at all. And their justification is that um, we need more hunters to fund conservation. But as I'm talking about, hunters play a role in conservation, but they're not the primary ones. And that's not necessarily conservation. I mean, uh, I guess to kind of go back, and I didn't quite finish one thought I had earlier, is we now have a system in which hunters pay for most of state wildlife management. And therefore, Hunters now basically control state wildlife agencies. And as a result, the state wildlife agencies usually emphasize what's best for hunters and anglers. Um, and that's not necessarily all bad. That's good if you want more elk and more deer and more things we shoot at. But it's not necessarily good if we want to have, you know, large intact functioning ecosystems that include wolves and grizzlies. And then all the hunters want to say, well, kill those wolves and grizzlies because they're interfering with what we want. We want more elk to kill. You know, and even though a lot of what they're saying is not even true, they believe it. And that perception drives the agency and the state uh, game commissions that are appointed by the governor made up mostly of hunters and ranchers. Um, and that's kind of where I ended up having my falling out with the hunting groups, because I feel like we need to drastically reform wildlife management in this country where, yes, hunting should always play a role and it, and it can play an important role. But uh, if we truly want to go by the North American model of wildlife management, then we'll recognize the public trust that not just hunters should be controlling all this and what's done. Uh, and the legitimate purpose for killing, I mean, is... Whacking prairie dogs really a legitimate purpose? What's the legitimate purpose? Fun and entertainment? Um, killing wolves? Having hunting contests? 
running coyotes over with snowmobiles like they do in Wyoming, which was deemed legal. Um, yeah, that's. And it should I, be based on is, science and it should be democratic. You know, I agree with the North American model, but we should follow it, not ignore it. And then wave it around like, <laughs> like it's, it's the greatest thing in the world when we don't even follow it, you know, half the time. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, where I see us, another area where I see us not following is, is in the, the democracy component. Um, and the other, um, you touched on this other fallacy, I think, too, that, uh, yes, hunters played a huge role in the past. I think hunters tend to exaggerate the role we play because there were also people like John Muir. You know, there were people like Rachel Carlson. There were people like E.O. Wilson. I mean, there's numerous non-hunters that played a huge role in protecting our, our environment and our wildlife and wild places. Um, so it wasn't just hunters. I think we tend to distort the history a little bit to favor us. But also, there's a fallacy in thinking that, you know, what worked and was done in Roosevelt's time should continue through today. Through the <laughs> Yeah. You know, Times are yeah. different. Things are different. Values are different. The public, there's a lot more people now. We have wolves. We have grizzlies have returned. Um, and I hate when hunters use those excuses to, um, now I'm going to pick on them what they have. with Randy Newberg has his own yeah. hunting show. Yeah. Randy's been, on, Randy's been on, this po on the podcast. Randy did a couple of hunting videos. It's like a two-part series on hunting wolves. And in that video, he basically says, we hunters paid for wildlife conservation. You other people have no business telling us how to manage wildlife. And you see this a lot in the hunting community. We set the, he, his exact words, we set the dinner table. Don't you tell us how to manage it. And he said that hunters have an obligation to kill as many wolves as they can. In wow. that video, his scope was knocked off in that video. You should go watch this. You know, it happens. You fall, you drop your rifle, mm -hmm. your scope might be knocked off. You got to sight it back in. He sights it in on a live coyote. And when he kills that coyote, he looks to the camera and says, well, I just saved a bunch of deer. It's just pure bullshit. It's ignorant. And and he's considered one of the best. I mean, so, that's honey. Okay, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm somewhere in the middle on all this because I thought, I, I I don't know. I don't have a solid sense. It's it's kind of hard to run the counterfactuals and say how many more deer would there be if we had not introduced wolves. Like the the like the northern herd in Yellowstone is now like four thousand, and at the time of wolf reintroduction in nineteen ninety eight, it was ten thousand. Is it would they yeah, have crashed? It, would they have crashed anyway? You know. So, I, I I guess I don't. I'm somewhere between you and Randy. I don't. I don't. I don't. Epistemically, like I don't know how you adjudicate the the claims one way or another. I, I I'm sure there's way to science scientifically. Well, there out. is, and if you if you go way back uh, in the 1930s and 40s when Olaf Murray and others were studying Yellowstone. And they estimated the carrying capacity of the northern range to be between, uh, I think, five and 8,000 elk. Um, and then so during those years that we had 20,000 elk, it was clear the damage it was doing to the, the northern Yellowstone elk range. It was, you know, damaging the, the riparian communities, the Aspen communities. It was uh, 
affecting every other species in there that, that relies on all that. And now we do know that wolves have returned. They've helped restore some balance. Um, and the ecosystem is healthier. Those are measurable things. Those are scientific things, you know. The only other argument the other way is to say, oh, but there's not as many elk for us to shoot when they step across the park boundary lines. <laughs> and to me, that's not a legitimate uh, reason to have more elk, just so people have opportunity to go shoot them when they walk across this artificial line we created in the park. Yeah, there's that uh, make sense? it does make sense. I guess it just depends on what your value system is. I mean, I that's could, a good point. I, I could see where someone would make the case that what we should be trying to optimize or maximize is the ability of people that want to shoot an elk to shoot an elk. Like, uh, I, uh, I guess there's there's multiple ways to be a secular humanist. You could you could think that it's incumbent on us and it's best for us and it's best and it's best for overall well being to maintain everything or you could be like no we just want montana to be an elk factory you know and i don't yeah, know which right? and i don't know which of those is i i certainly wouldn't want to be the one to, to to make that decision i'm glad there's wolves out there i tend to think they need to be managed i don't know i mean and then with grizzly bears it's like we hunted grizzly bears in the state i guess for many 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 i mean up until 1970 they had been hunted in montana for all of human history here so would you be would you be okay with hunting grizzly bears if you felt that there were, there were enough of them to withstand harvest oh again uh i don't think i would anymore there was a time i'd say yes to that but again grizzlies are a top apex predator they evolved without predation um we now have several distinct populations that are separated and isolated, and most biologists agree that there needs to be connectivity between, say, the Yellowstone population and the, the northern population if we're going to have uh, long-term health and sustainability for grizzlies. Okay. Again, if you kill the wrong grizzly, if you kill a big boar, which is what most hunters want to go after, you can disrupt a lot of their uh, breeding behavior and territorial structures. And it can exasperate the problems you think you're creating. It can increase uh, uh, infanticide. Or, infanticide? You know, yeah, I, I read a couple articles about that in Norway where that was the case. So, you know, I think if you have a problem there that's become too habituated to people and it's breaking into cabins, like up, you know, happened several times now up the North Fork of the Flathead, then there's occasions and you move that bear and it keeps coming back. Um, you have to kill a bear, but hunters aren't targeting those bears. Um, what about in Alaska? Well, I don't know a lot about Alaska, but I know they hunt bears and they got a lot of bears. I don't know what impact that's having on the population. I don't know. Um, but you're not like, to be honest you with you, I guess this is not, my, you know. Okay. So if what I'm getting is if it came to a vote, you'd vote against hunting grizzlies in montana but if you were in well, Alaska, particularly now they're yeah. not ready to be delisted now there's too many challenges they face right now yeah and what okay but if you were lived in alaska and it was an entirely different situation the bear populations are all connected spatially then you might be okay with it i'm just trying I to i don't know a, okay uh, i'm trying to get a sense at what like 
What level would you oppose it? And I'll tell you why, because I don't think there's any legitimate justification for it. Why kill a grizzly bear? Why? For fun, for amusement, for entertainment? Is that a legitimate purpose? Well, I don't think gonna, many if, people gonna, eat them. If, if you're going to eat, if you were going to eat it and use the hide, then you'd be, it'd be, you could ask, then you'd be in just, it'd be just like killing an elk in, this, in certain respect, wouldn't it? Kind of, except elk evolved as prey and they're a prey species. And because of that, all of their breeding behavior, um, this is why, you know, grizzly bears are very slow to reproduce and the survival rates aren't very high because they're not. They didn't evolve as a prey species. There's not a, they don't flood the land with a bunch of grizzlies that other creatures can eat. Okay. <laughs> elk do, you know, okay. elk breed and breed and breed. They have lots of calves and every year there's more new crops of calves and they feed, you know, not only us, but the wolves and the coyotes and the eagles. and the. <laughs> so I don't know. That's a tough question, Matt, but um, what about black bears? Well, personally, you know, and I used to hunt black bear. In fact, uh, Killed a lot of black bears, and I used to hunt them with a bow. And personally, I don't hunt black bears anymore. I'm definitely opposed to hunting them over bait and spring bear hunting, um, which kind of illustrates some of the criticisms about hunting I'd like to get back to, because it was about that same time period I had that falling out with the hunting groups. But uh, that's a tough one. I just don't see any biological or ethical justification for killing apex predators, except under specific cases where you're targeting individuals that have become a problem. Okay. This is like back to grizzlies too. You know, it's interesting, but most conflict between humans and grizzlies derives from uh, sow grizzlies innate aggressive behavior to protect their cubs. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, every hunting season that's proposed anywhere doesn't include hunters going out and killing sows and cubs. So how does going out and killing a, a young boar or an old boar prevent those conflicts? It, you know, it doesn't. That's the answer. And yet, I guess what really bothers me is the lies and the misconceptions, the justification that people come up with, that they'll lose their fear of people, that they will... Um, uh, be less aggressive, that uh, it'll it'll reduce conflict between humans and grizzlies. And then you get the same kind of lies with, with wolves, that uh, they're not the same species that historically lived here. They uh, they kill just for the fun of it. Have you heard that one? Uh, that was, yeah, I have. I have. And uh, they're annihilating all of our elk herds and deer herds, and uh, they're going to come after our children next. I mean, I've heard all that from hunters. At, at least if you are going to come up with a management plan and a hunting system, at least follow the North American model of wildlife management and base it on good sound science, you know, not just bullshit, myths and lies and misconceptions. Mm. And I guess that's my take. I could support hunting seasons. If the biologist could come up to me and persuade me with sound science, sound logic, and not just BS, you know, if they say here, is our plan. Here's the science behind it. And here's what we expect the results to be. Instead, they're just doing it on, uh, you know, they're just catering to the demands of ranchers and hunters, uh, basing management on lies and myths. And they're exasperating the problems they think they're taking care of. 
And then those problems become so bad that then the hunters and ranchers are demanding we kill even more. You know, it gets into be this weird cycle. Let's stop and look at the science and look what's really happening on the landscape and then decide what we should do. Does that make sense? It does. It does. I'm just not familiar with how much the, the, the agencies that manage wolves know about their impacts. I mean, maybe they do have some calculations that they run where they're like, we need to reduce numbers by 25% or the elk are going to start to tank. I don't know, you know. Yeah, and there is a lot of science out there that's often dismissed and ignored. Um, you know, in the hunting community overall, uh, isn't usually real friendly towards uh, <laughs> dissent and questioning. Yeah, yeah. Well, there is this narrative that we're all supposed to stick together and, and be in lockstep. I, uh, I don't know if you remember this, but about that time period back when I was working so hard in all the hunting groups. I was also uh, on the board of directors for the Outdoor Writers Association of America. And uh, I don't know. I just think this is all kind of fascinating what happened back then and um, is still going on. The, um, the Sierra Club joined the Outdoor Writers Association of America as a, like a corporate or sustaining member. Um, the NRA led hunters into protesting that and were just furious. And a whole bunch of them walked out on the OWA. You know, mm. they didn't want that group to have anything to do with it. And of course, accused them of being anti-hunting and anti. And some of that's still going on today. And about that same time, there was a guy named Tom Beck, who was the chief bear biologist for the state of Colorado and an avid and passionate hunter. But he started looking at research about some of the impacts to bears of shooting bears over bait. You know, their habituation to human handouts, how it was changing some of their, their uh, habits and behavior. And, and, um, and also some of the impacts of the spring bear hunt. Um, and he wrote an essay about it that was very thought-provoking. In fact, it's included in an anthology by David Peterson called The Hunter's Heart, Honest Essays on Bloodsport. Um, and anyways, when he first pitched that article, he, he pitched it to Outdoor Life and Outdoor Life was going to publish it. But the Wildlife Legislative Fund of America, which is now called something else, and the NRA uh, got wind of that. And they rallied and led all of the hunting industry and hunters to threaten Outdoor Life and say, if you publish that article, we'll never advertise with you again. We'll never read your magazine again. We'll never subscribe. So Outdoor Life backed off. They didn't publish the article. And uh, the two editors of Outdoor Life at the time resigned. Oh, that's wow. kind of that is a about. fantastic story. Oh, yeah. You can look this up. And uh, Dave Peterson would be a great guy for you to talk about. I don't know if you're familiar with Dave's work. Uh-oh. He's a Colorado bow hunter that uh, has written extensively about uh, hunting ethics and hunting. And uh, anyway, that whole thing blew up. And it made me realize, once again, that there really isn't any room in the hunting world to, for dissent or to question things. And it's become so powerful. I mean, another tenet of the North American wildlife, North American model of wildlife management, is that we not uh, eliminate markets. And of course, back then they meant 
markets for things like dead bison and bison hides and elk ivory teeth and all that sort of stuff. But um, look at how commercialized hunting has become and how powerful the hunting industry now is. Um, and if you even question, you know, something that's sacred to them, they just come an all-out attack on you, you know? They come oh, and they, there's I've that. been subject of it several times. You, you, you've been subject of it? Oh, numerous times. It's amazing oh, how many times me, I've been me, me as well. anti-hunter. Oh, and I, I'm familiar with that when you wrote about R3. Yeah. And, I and saw that a little wasn't bit the of that. That wasn't the only time. I also wrote an article. It about didn't surprise hunting, me. Yeah. About hunting social media where I got skewered. And so, and, and with this hunting, so the market, um, the wildlife shouldn't be, uh, there shouldn't be, we, shouldn't be a market for wildlife. I, I would argue that hunting television and hunting social media create a market. Oh, without a doubt. And then all the advertisers in the industry too. And then all these guys do is promote, you know, the products they, they sell the, no, they use carcasses to sell products. That's instead of using the carcasses to like, you know, I just learned that a lot of the bison that were shot, they, they use the hides as like, um, I didn't know this, but to um, instead of rubber, like on a bet on a between two gears, they would use leather. Really? And yeah, yeah. So a I lot of bison hides was used in that way as like the um, yeah to to, to drive uh, to drive gears. And um, so anyway, I think of it. I think it. That well, my is, thing with hunting shows is twenty first um, century market hunting is is these are are hunting celebrities using carcasses to sell products for their sponsors. Gabe Peterson calls them har har hunting heroes. What what <laughs> I don't get, I mean, when you look Sounds at like it, I should talk to Dave. <laughs> these, Dave Dave is a character now. I'll tell you what happened uh, a few years ago. He lives in a little cabin he built himself in Colorado. If you Google him, you'll see his writing everywhere. He wrote Elk Heart, okay. which is kind of a tribute to elk and elk hunting. Uh, he wrote, uh, I don't know, he's just a fantastic guy. He was friends with Edward Abbey. If that <laughs> oh, so, Yeah, so he's kind of along that line. And he's a bit curmudgeonly. And his wife died a few years ago, and it really devastated him. And it's almost like he just kind of hides out it made him more of a hermit he just kind of hides out and keeps to himself now but he's a fantastic guy i'll tell you what i'll see if i can um pique his interest for you and i'll get his number yeah uh, I'll, I'll email him when we're done because yeah, he would uh, he's he's incredible and another mentor of mine of sorts from back in the day or corrupted me however you want to look at it but um, i was going to touch on something about hunting shows i've always Whenever I've watched hunting shows, I always felt so uneasy. It's like they've turned killing an animal into entertainment for profit. And that just seems so bizarre and wrong to me. Well, I love to hunt. Ergo, I kill a lot of elk. Like your, your uh, seven pillars again, right? I mean, it doesn't seem in a lot aligned with the North American model. I don't think so, but you know. <laughs> And then you have these people like that just travel the world killing animals for amusement and entertainment. And it's just bizarre. When I was still working for the Montana Wildlife Federation, I went to this uh, 
bow hunting film festival yeah yeah that that just is is coming back i just found out yesterday so it's called the full draw film festival it was and i went to that and I, it was around for I've several killed. years and then it went away and now it's coming back did it okay yeah, well i had to go to that to set up a table and promote the montana wildlife federation and uh it, it was interesting because uh I've been bow hunting most of my life. That's how I've killed most of my elk. But I was watching these movies and it was just weird to me. And they they had this one movie where uh, they had the guy draw and the elk steps from behind a tree and there's the release. The arrow goes perfectly, perfect shot. The elk goes to run off and drops dead, right? Mm -hmm. And then they show it again in slow motion motion with dramatic music playing, you know, and it's like the arrow slowly going and it hits and everybody is literally standing up cheering like, yeah, like, like Tom Brady just scored a touchdown in the Super Bowl. And I thought, yeah. this is weird. And yeah. personally, personally, I think it's incredibly disrespectful to the elk, yeah. you know, Agreed. It's, it's kind of disgusting. And, and like I said, I've killed a lot of elk with bow and arrow, but um. Yikes! I, it's weird. It is. I, I I I agree. It's weird, and you know, everybody has an impulse to want to look at that. I think, or many, many, many people do. I I'll admit that I used to, when I would go to academic conferences, I would spend time in my motel room watching hunting TV. I don't have TV at home, but and you know, I I got a, a thrill out of seeing kill shots, just just like probably everybody else or this many other like people. A... Oh, there's your buddy. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just not, I don't think it's good for our pastime. I, I think it, it, it incentivizes hunting for shitty reasons. And, uh, and well, like it turns hunting into a popularity contest, like who can shoot the most and put it on Instagram or, but it, it, it just kind of degrades the spiritual element of it, you know? You know, that's a good way to put it. I agree. I've often said to people, too, hunting hunting is not a spectator sport. Yeah. But it's weird. Uh, so. Yeah, so I want to, if, if, if uh, there's nothing more in that vein, I wanted to ask you about your thesis. Oh, well, I wanted to tell you one other thing, too, about the R3 okay. programs, because I, I know that you kind of got involved in that battle. Yeah. And um, I guess I go even further. I think not only do we not need more hunters, but I think the premise, a lot of their reasoning is that, that you know, we already talked about a lot of this because it's necessary to fund conservation. So we need more boaters. We need more archery people. We need more shooters, you know, to fund conservation. It's just so nonsensical. And really what it comes down to is I just see it as this huge scam that the industry is behind. I mean, we're basically using taxpayers' money, money from Pittman-Robertson funds, to help fund recruiting more customers for, for the industry. I mean, what a scam. What yeah, is, you know, did, did you know if that only that, all of us could up, do that? <laughs> did you know that up until four or five years ago, PR dollars couldn't be used for R three? 
I did know that. Okay. Yes. Yeah. 2019, I think they reformed it, right? Yeah. So somewhere around then. Yeah. And you know, and what what a it's exactly what give it the is. industry some credit. It's like, hey, what if we get, you know, <laughs> taxpayers to help fund and find more customers for us and we can call it conservation. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Clever. Yeah. But yeah, the, the a, weird it's part a tax is that's it it's a will leverage a tax against um citizens and that'll be our advertising dollars. <laughs> but as you learn, if you question it, then the whole power of that whole industry will come down on you. It's like, you know, it's like questioning the NRA. You do it and watch out. They come out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Um, My but, thesis. <laughs> but I I feel like it's getting harder and harder to make the case for R3. And I take some credit for that, but it's just when what I always say is the biggest three problems in hunting today are crowding, lack of access. I take a, a, a nationwide view on this, not a Montana-centric view. Um, lack of access, crowding, and, and inability to draw tags. If you look at what has happened to draw odds um, for non-residents, say, of a Western state, they they plummeted in the last decade. And how in the world can you look at that? And I also use a lot of the data on what intense hunting pressure does to wildlife, the negative consequences of it. it there's lots of peer-reviewed studies, everything from ducks and fat concentrations in ducks and fantasy rates of bears, lots of stuff with cow to calf elk ratios in elk. Um, there's a ton of information about out there of uh, the tremendous impacts we're seeing of um, too many people hunting elk during the rut. Okay, right. So, so that it's getting hard for it's getting tougher for the nonprofits to justify their R three. I believe when you look well, at that's good. You know when you look at like <laughs> they in my the way I put it is they are contributing to the biggest and when i say they i mean rmef backcountry hunters and anglers ducks unlimited pheasants forever nor uh while north north american wild turkey federation all, all the nonprofits that have an r3 arm i say they're contributing to the biggest problems in hunting today you know you know they're making it harder it. to draw a tag are <laughs> more crowded and and um, more hunters you have, the more valuable access becomes. So people are more willing to pay for more, more willing to pay for it. So, I yeah, I see that them as, it's this weird thing where these groups that started out trying to help the sportsmen are now the enemy of the sportsmen, in my view. And I don't, I you know, that's, that's, that's been a common theme since I can remember that, you know, Dave Peterson, uh, Ted Carasodi and others that have, written so eloquently about this. I've always said, you know, we're basically, it's the old Pogo cartoon. Uh, we're our own worst enemies, or we we found the enemy and it is us. I, I think uh, hunters have always been their own worst enemy, you know, and we continue to be so even more so. Yeah, but this and, isn't the hunter. This is the hunting industry. And that, well, the, the, yeah, and the industry, but they sort of, it's all tied together because then they rally the hunters you know, we're in a time where truth no longer matters, or as Mark Twain said, never 
never let a fact get in the way of what you choose to believe. And they, <laughs> they feed the hunting population with a lot of, uh, you know, bullshit. And then a lot of hunters believe it. And then they rally against, uh, those of us who are questioning things and it's just weird, you know, it's, it's yeah. odd, but yeah, I've always, there's a, a real, a real, I guess it's because people are busy, but there's not a lot of philosophical introspection in the hunting community. I don't think there, we are presented with authorities, people that are hunting celebrities. There that are people that are at that work for hunting nonprofits, and 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 what they tell us is basically received wisdom for us. You know, I I I've kind of awoken from my dogmatic slumber. You know, obviously. But I think there's a lot of people that just they're busy. They don't take the time to formulate their own viewpoint about hunting. They just believe what they're told to believe, you know. And, and what yeah, I, I think what's a big the huge what's really unfortunate about that is everybody that's telling them what to believe is financially incentivized to have the hunting community believe a certain set of things. I agree, Matt. Yeah, I think I once called. Um, oh, I can't remember where I saw this, and I'm, I'm probably going to blow this. But um, you know how you hear people talk about the industrialized military complex. Yeah, I've heard people refer to the uh, like industrialized <laughs> hunting complex. Yeah, of, I've of heard how, that too. Of, heard of that how closely too. now tied the uh, the hunters are with the hunting organizations and the industry and. Uh, you know, even the best of hunting groups, and I, for example, like put backcountry hunters and anglers up there as one of the better hunting groups, but even they won't speak out uh, about the war on wolves and what's going on and how unscientific it is because they fear the industry will quit supporting them and the hunters will quit supporting them. It's what yeah. Aldo Leopold, I think Aldo Leopold said uh, that hunters and hunters, he said something about there being no leaders in the hunting world uh, and that most hunting organizations and the agencies and everybody um, appeal to the lowest common denominator because they don't want to upset the masses. They don't want to lose. The industry doesn't want to lose money. The nonprofits don't want to lose their support and the agencies uh, kind of do what they all want because <laughs> that's the people that are funding their salaries right now. If and that's got to change. It's got to change. I'm yeah. part of a, an exciting group called Wildlife for All. Um, oh, I've never heard of them. Wildlife for All is uh, it's kind of a newer group. Uh, Kevin Bixby is the founder, and he's also a hunter. Uh, although he, too, is accused often of being an anti-hunter because we don't go along with the, the theme. I like to tell people now, I've been accused of being an anti-hunter so much that I now tell people I'm a, a I'm an anti-hunter who hunts, <laughs> which is, you know, why not? Why not? We're going to come up with labels. That's the label I like. And uh, I think it's true. I love wolves. I love grizzlies. I love wilderness. And, so what's, uh, the, what's I, wildlife for all? What's What are they? Wildlife for all is, is looking to reform wildlife management where all people have more of a say in wildlife. And it's not so influenced just by the hunting community okay and of course it's already meeting a lot of resistance from the hunting world when uh there was a conference in spokane recently 
I don't know if it was the Wildlife Society or the um, the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. It was one of those groups. I have to look this up. And they held a symposium in Spokane recently. And um, they invited uh, Kevin and some others from Wildlife for All to come speak. And the hunting industry and the NRA in particular, and uh, I forgot what they now call the Wildlife Legislative Fund of America. It used to be the WLFA. Now it's something else. I can't help you. But yeah, they responded. Uh, they were so angry, and they accused uh, the agencies of of turning against hunting, inviting these anti-hunters to come speak, even though the group consists of many hunters, including myself and Kevin. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's bizarre, but that's what goes on. It's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you're either with us or you're against us. You're a communist. It's McCarthyism. It's a form of McCarthyism. Well, that, I guess the way to put it in is th- this just to say you're, you're, you're anti-predator. Right? Isn't that it's just that clean and cut and dry? Yeah, but a lot of them are pretty proud of that, I think. <laughs> no, no. Well, yeah, I'm not saying you. I'm saying you, David, are anti-predator hunting, right? Oh, 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 oh! Anti-predator hunting. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I'm sorry. I thought you said anti-predator, and I was like, ah, oh, well, that's I mean, what most hunters are. But no, uh, yes, that, that's a good way to look at it. I mean, I, I, you're 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 a person that likes to hunt for um, herbivores. But and it not, goes beyond that. And I not think it's omnivores also, and car- carnivores. I also really like healthy, functioning, intact, resilient ecosystems, of which yeah. predators are a major critical part of. And so it goes beyond just my own selfish interests. It's not just that, you know, I only hunt herbivores, therefore that's all you should hunt. I'm not that kind of person. I don't, I don't want to be that kind of person. Um, I also feel like I have some pretty good reasoning behind it and that um again i wish science was guiding wildlife management as hunters love to claim unfortunately it's definitely not uh it's definitely not the basis behind predator hunting there's no science involved at all anymore it's just doing what uh hunters want because they think it'll mean more animals for them to to kill so well i can see that with some things but they're especially with wolves but like black bears, I don't hear the motivation for hunting a black bear. I've shot a few of them was never, I'm going to go bear hunting so that there's more elk around this fall by God. It true, was, very I'm going to shoot a bear. I'm going to eat the meat. I like and it. It is meat, good. I do like, black and bear. I'm going to do something with the hide. And to me, that's like no different in terms of the mental process, the, the the motivational for doing it than hunting a pronghorn antelope or a deer or an elk. You know? I agree. Um, However, I'll relate a story to you too. Another story that um, happened uh, probably around 2000, which relates to black bear hunting. And this, this kind of gets more to what I'm talking about, about the science. There were a bunch of hunters in Idaho in the Clearwater region of Idaho, um, where elk numbers seemed to be dropping, and hunters had seen where black bears had killed elk and eaten elk. 
And there was evidence also showing that black bears were killing a lot of elk. So hunters started putting pressure on the state to do a study and come up with a plan to kill more black bears so there'd be more elk, okay? Mm -hmm. So the state conducted a study. Here's what their conclusion of the study was. Because there were so many hunters hunting these elk in the rut when elk are most vulnerable to being hunted, um, and also because of some roading and clear-cutting and easy access, uh, which increases the vulnerability, reduces habitat security, and increases the vulnerability of hunted elk, okay? So a lot of bulls were getting hammered. And there was low bull-to-cow ratios in this herd, and there was also a lack of mature bulls in the herd. And what that can do, what the science shows, is when that happens, it kind of throws the breeding behavior off. Cow elk will breed through a longer period of time. Um, it causes more stress with the cows because there's basically, like a biologist once told me, imagine a human population with only teenage boys doing the courting and breeding. You know, mm, okay. <laughs> you know the, the big bulls were gone. And, and on and on and on. And what it basically, in a nutshell, showed that not only were calves being born later in the season, they were also being born over a longer period of time. They weren't getting what biologists call this flooding strategy where like all calves are born at once and kind of overwhelms the predators. So because of this, and they were also being born late after the spring flush of green and, uh, and things were already starting to dry out. So because of all this, because calves were being born late and because not as many cows were being impregnated and because they were being born over a longer period of time, um, they were more susceptible to predation, okay. which made it easier for animals like bears to kill and eat the elk. So the state recommended reducing the bull elk vulnerability, maybe closing some roads, restricting access, going to a primitive weapons hunting season, maybe reducing the number of hunters. Other things they can do is go to brow tine only where, you know, you can't, uh, oh, um, Shoot those sorts of regulations that, that would restore the bull to cow ratios and restore the number of mature bulls. The hunters, that's the science. And we hunters love to say, you know, that hunting is based on good sound science. The hunters would have nothing to do with it. They rallied and all the groups and the hunting industry and the hunters pressured the state to say, no, kill more bears. That's the answer. We want you to kill bears. So guess what the state of Idaho did? They killed more bears. Oh, I thought they, you said this was Colorado. No, no. This was all in uh, Idaho. Okay. In Idaho. But but okay. it happens everywhere. It's just one example of what I'm talking about, where um, you know, it was dictated by what the hunters wanted, not by the science. They didn't follow the science. Um, and I guess it's just one good example of the kind of thing I'm I'm talking about that really mm -hmm. frustrates me and upsets me. And um and then back in the old days of the Rock Mountain Elk Foundation, when I was the conservation editor of Bugle, we could write about these things and try to inform hunters. I remember writing an article for Bugle when I was the conservation editor about an interesting study done up in Canada where they compared an elk herd that existed with wolves to an elk herd where there were no wolves, all in a similar type habitat up near Riding Mountain National Park in Canada. What they found was in the end, mortality to the elk was similar. 
In other words, um, in the herd that had no wolves, every four or five years would be a harsh winter and just as many elk would die. This kind of ties in what you were saying earlier. Gotcha. Um, so what they found was that the predation was uh, with wolves was, was not additive, but compensatory. Okay. In other words, there was similar mortality in both herds. And we published that article. Um, but a lot of people started getting really upset with Bugle Magazine. Um, advertisers were threatening to pull the ads. Uh, hunters were getting disgusted with uh, what they called our voodoo, voodoo stuff. They, they didn't like the truth. Um, they thought we were anti-hunters. I was accused there of being an anti-hunter because I once wrote an article about high wounding rates in bow hunting and how we can reduce that. And I was accused by the archery industry of being, um, and the Pope and Young Club, of being anti-bow hunting. Even though that I was is, a bow hunter. That is and wild. So that the is Elk Foundation eventually wild. changed. You might have seen all that. Ended up firing a whole They put other people in charge. They put a guy who used to work for NASCAR in charge. Uh, he's the one who said that Wolves were the worst ecological disaster since the decimation of bison. He said we need to not only kill the wolves, but then go after the grizzlies so we have more elk. You know, mm -hmm. and that, and, and interestingly enough, their membership numbers rose from that because they were telling people what they want to hear. I guess that's yeah. what it comes down to, telling people yeah. what they want to hear. Yeah. That's Sorry, wild. I'm really you know, that's a, and that's a that's a wild story you told me earlier too about how outdoor life couldn't even put out an article um explaining the science behind bear baiting. You know, yeah, I'll Google it. Tom Beck was his name. Uh, uh, that is he, that is he wild. was the chief bear, and it's in uh well, now, but it's a it's a great book by Dave Peterson. Uh Talk about philosophical views of hunting. It's a, a collection of uh, honest essays about hunting that really, uh, I have an essay in there I was pretty proud of about the impacts of technology on hunting. And it's called uh, Space Age Technology, Stone Age Pursuit. Mm, that's a great uh, title. That's a great And it started title. when I was sitting on a mountaintop once uh, in Norway, uh, looking over into Russia in the height of the Cold War. I was a force recon Marine and we were training up in Northern Norway. And I was sitting in an observation post on a mountain and it's like 40 below zero, you know? And we had, uh, you know, back then this was high tech stuff. We had our uh, night vision goggles and GPS and uh, laser red scopes and all this stuff. And I remember saying to a friend of mine, just joking around, what if we had this technology available for hunting? And I was kidding. But now you look through the hunting catalogs or go to a Cabela's or a Shields, all of that is available and more for hunting. Yeah. For us. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. It's really sad, I think. Because um, where does it, like, where does it end? I mean, where does it, at what point is it that we have such a, an advantage that it just doesn't even resemble what it, was supposed to be like obviously if you i always use this if you could be sitting on your couch and have your game cam pointed at a tray at a trail with a rifle mounted underneath it and you could push a button and the rifle would go off i think we could i hope i fucking hope we could all agree that that would be nonsensical right 
Well, I think a lot but of us would think It seems that. like we're marching unstoppably towards that. Well, you know, some of us would speak out against it, but somebody would, uh, some industry company would develop the technology and then the NRA would back them because it'd give them a bunch of money. And then, you know, the, the har har hunting heroes on the TV shows would, would show how great it was. And then those of us who question it would be, <laughs> I hope marginalized. I'm being yeah. a little facetious, but um, yeah. hope, I agree with you. I hope that would be too far, but you never know. It's amazing what, um, Years ago, there was somebody in Idaho driving around ATV. He had a, a, a like a 50 cal mounted to his ATV that he had done what uh, I was a sniper in the Marine Corps as well. And uh, there was a famous sniper who, uh, Carlos Hathcock, who uh, in Vietnam converted a, a 50 cal machine gun to where you could file single shots. And he was using it as a sniper rifle. I mean, he could hit a grapefruit at, at 1,500 meters, you know. And, uh, Damn. So some guy was employing this kind of technology to hunting in Idaho. They were shooting elk from like a mile or more away across canyons. Wow. And people were writing about it and bragging about it and bragging about what a great shot he was. Fortunately, Idaho did respond and outlaw that technology. Oh. And then, of course, a bunch, a bunch of hunters were angry that they were, you know, restricting their freedom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, on and on. We could, we could talk about it all day. So I there's know. a... There's this girl on Instagram that last fall she puts this video up, and this this is a woman with 1.8 million followers. She's standing next to a deer she just shot, and she's recounting how she was getting ready to go to the trade show. She was back at in her house getting ready to go to the trade show, like this big trade show in Utah where a lot of the influencers go and bid on tags. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, she looks in her at her game cam, you know, or on her phone. She's got her game cam piped into her phone. And there's a buck that she's been wanting to get out there in the field. And she grabs her rifle and sneaks out there and shoots it. So that's how close we are, you know. Wow. To the to the hypothetical I posed, crazy. Yeah. Oh, tell me about your thesis. <laughs> you really want to hear about that? Yeah. Um, I'm working on. Uh, in fact, I've been working on it most of the morning. I'm oh, you're not. You haven't graduated yet. Yes, I did. Okay. I finished my thesis, but I'm working on trying to turn that thesis into a book. Okay, a book. Yeah. And basically, I was going through a lot of struggles after I got out of Marine Force Recon. And I spent a lot of time alone out in the wilds. Well, what, what were you struggling with? Did you see combat? Well, I'll, get, I'll, get, I'll get to that. Okay. okay. <laughs> so um, primarily in the end, what I was struggling with is I am gay. Okay. But I never accepted that in myself. I've always fought it. I always tried to be something I wasn't. I always tried to be the tough, masculine guy. Well, you even have a kid, right? Oh, yeah. I got married, had a kid. For, fortunately, my former wife, who's a scientist with the U.S. Forest Service, is my closest friend. And we have a oh, son. Oh, wow. That's wild. Yeah. And we have a son together who is, uh, his name is Corey. Wonderful kid. He's 22 now. He has Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So that's a lot of challenges. But he, he has faced up to those challenges and he's doing so good. And he's so stubbornly independent and uh, going to school. So I was struggling with all of this. 
and I was drinking a lot. And uh, one day I drove to a trailhead near, near Missoula and was considering suicide. I brought my shotgun with me and I came close to killing myself. And then I thought, you know, I'm just going to take off. And this wasn't like a plan where I thought, you know, I'm going to go on a big backpack trip just for fun. This was like, I didn't think I'd come back. But I had remembered wow. maps. I had always studied these maps. You can go from Missoula, Montana to Waterton, Alberta, through some of the most remote wild country left in the lower 48 and only cross three roads. And I remember thinking about that and thinking, I'm just going to leave. I'm just going to start walking north. So I went home, loaded up my backpack, and started heading north. Um, and I went all the way to Canada. It took me three months. It was over 1,000 miles, mostly. Wait, was this pre-wife and pre-kid? No, this was after. Uh, my son was probably uh, less than a year old, and my wife had filed for divorce. I see. So she had custody of your, of your son. Yeah, because I was drinking so much and became miserable to live with, but nobody really okay. understood what was. People knew I was struggling with things, but few people understood what or why, you know? Yeah. And um, so I basically went all the way to Canada and I went uh, off trail mostly. I went through the uh, Rattlesnake Wilderness, South Fork of the Jocko Primitive Area, the Mission Mountain Wilderness, the uh, Great Bear Scapegoat, Bob Marshall Wilderness, through Glacier National Park and uh, into Canada and kept a journal. And worked on things. And I finally came to terms with things. And it was kind of grizzlies that helped me come to terms with things. I remember one day watching this uh, grizzly sow with her cubs playing. They didn't know I was there. I was downwind maybe 100 yards, hiding behind a big log. And just watching them play and watching uh, these grizzlies interact. And I remember thinking uh, that one of the reasons I had spent so much time alone in the wilds growing up is because in the wilds, there is no societal created uh, judgments or expectations. Everything is what it is, right? A grizzly might judge me as a potential threat or a possible feast, but it doesn't give a shit about anything else. It's freedom. It's freedom. You can be who you are and what you are in the wilds, and that's how I was always so comfortable out there. And then I thought how I had spent most of my career defending grizzly bears, telling people they are what they are. They're not evil. They're not, you know, gods. They're bears. They are, they are, they do what they do. They just want, they just need space and understanding and respect. And and that's how I kind of came to terms with everything through the wilds. Mm. I wrote an essay about this once that was published uh, in a national magazine and uh, it has a funny title, but it's kind of a serious topic. It's called How Grizzlies Made Me Gay. Oh, wow. <laughs> what, what, so where was a, what was the outlet? It was in uh, The Advocate and High Country News. Okay. So, so in a nutshell, the book is tentatively called Out Into the Wilds, A Gay Marine's Journey to Self-Acceptance. Wow. And it, it leads in wow. a lot of natural history, the adventure itself, coming to terms with such things, um, and then coming to terms with once you do something like that, you wonder how much of the past was really me, how much was tense, how much was fake, how much, you know, yeah. and on and on. Yeah. Uh, anyways, it ties to our discussion because uh, after I came back from that trip and I came out, I wrote an essay called Broke Back. So you, you did the whole thing? 
Yeah, yeah, I did that whole trip. Ended up in Canada. How'd you get home? A friend came up and picked me up and brought me back home. So you were out there for three months? Yeah, just about three months. And how would you get food? Um, I did stop and resupply in uh, the Sealy Swan Valley, and then again in East Glacier, the town in Montana. But mostly I ate a lot of, uh, and this pisses off a friend of mine, but I ate a lot of grouse, which may or may not have been legal to bop with a stick and throw rocks at at the time. Okay. And, um, and I ate a ton of fish. I ate a lot of berries, and I basically just, a lot of it, I just kind of lived off the land. I lost a ton of weight. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I was skinny. I was very skinny when I finished that trip. <laughs> <laughs> but like I said, I didn't go out there with the intention of having fun. At, when I left, I was kind of in a suicidal mode. And just yeah. Back. But it changed my life, hopefully for the better. We'll see. And um, it's funny because then I wrote an essay called Brokeback Mountain, best elk hunting movie. And that got widely published nationwide. And then, of course, I was attacked by a lot of hunters for Wait, that one. What's this now? What is that all about? After I came back. Wait, you know, the movie so you're, you're, the, the title is based on the uh, book that broke well, back Well, after Mount? I came out, after I came back from that trip, I was on a site called the Bow Site in the early days where hunters get on there and chat about all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. People with names like Bear Slayer and, and yeah. you know, yeah. Elk Massacre 3. <laughs> and they're always writing things. And they were all writing. Uh, one of them wrote this stupid post about how ridiculous the movie Brokeback Mountain was. And then somebody else got on board. Well, you didn't watch it, did you? Well, of course not. I didn't. <laughs> I, I wouldn't watch it. I mean, you know, it was so the yeah, insecurity yeah. of these guys was so humorous. It's like, oh no, no, of course I wouldn't watch that. I'm not one of them. And uh, <laughs> but then somebody wrote, I hear there's an elk hunting scene in it, and somebody else wrote, Well, that's hysterical. Gay people could never hunt elk. You know, it was all that sort of right. stuff. Yeah. So I ended up. It inspired me to write an essay called "Brokeback Mountain: Best Elk Hunting Movie." With a question mark. Okay. And that was published in The Advocate and High Country News. And then NPR asked me to do a commentary on it. And I read it on NPR. Oh. Nationwide. Cool. And I had friends back east. One friend told me he was driving down the road and listening to NPR when all of a sudden I come on. And now we have Dave Stalling from Montana to read this essay. He said he almost drove into a telephone pole. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so in a way, it was a little bit fun. But so, yeah, that's my thesis and I'm sticking to it. Yeah. Okay. I'm hoping that'll be a book. Okay. We'll how, see. how many hours a week are you working on it? I work at least three hours a day on it right now. Well, okay. I, I should say I try to, you know how that is. Yeah. 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 And things, I drive a bus to pay the, the way. Yeah. So I get up and write. I'm also working on other stuff. I'm part of that wildlife forever group. I'm uh Still writing essays, columns about wildlife-related issues. Um, I'm going to be giving a presentation here at the end of the month at a wolf conference in Yellowstone National Park. Oh. I'm still staying involved in that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. You were writing a lot of blogs for for a time, I saw. I did. I got a bit away from that. Yeah. Oh. Well, it sounds like you got plenty going on, so I could see where some things would have to um, go by the wayside a bit, for sure. 
Um, well, if there's nothing else, thank you no, so much. For... It's a real pleasure talking to you. I really enjoy it. Yeah. I don't know what to think, what to expect. Yeah, I've I've enjoyed it too. More than one person that recommended that I um, reach out to you and get your story, and I'm I'm very glad I did. So. Well, I am too. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. And you know, stay... I'll tell you back to something we were talking about. You know, I, I might not fully agree with you, of course, on things like you know hunting bears, but like Jim. Oh Boswell yeah. Said, they... But but like and Jim I, said, I, I don't I, like. I'm not. I'm definitely like not anti bear. But, 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 uh, but what but I wanted like, to say, I understand that. your viewpoint. You know. But when you do talk about it, at least you come up with what I think are logical, sound, rational reasoning. And I guess that's what I'd like to see more in wildlife management. It's not so much what I support and oppose, but let's if we're going to say it's based on science, well then let's base it on science and let's have some rational, logical, reasonable. You know, explanations. Mm -hmm. The public deserves that. We all deserve that. Yeah. <laughs> the non-hunting public deserves it. Oh, and what I appreciate about, about you is you I, you don't, it's not like you're um, have a hard stance on this stuff. It's just kind of where you're at. You've looked at the data. You've looked at um what you value and you've come to a judgment, but it doesn't sound like doesn't doesn't sound like you're um close to even thinking further about it, you know. And that I think that's what we need Try to do is be. we need to we, I think the hunting community I think the hunting community faces enormous challenges right now. Which so we in my mind, we gotta be willing to think hard, think outside the box. And I think we also have to be we gotta dispense with this Hunters need to stick with other hunters no matter what nonsense. Because if we're going to deal with these challenges, it's going to take some individuality. So you just reminded me of it'd be a good place to you just remind me of another Jim Poswitz quote. He once told me that uh, something along the lines of uh circling the wagons isn't a very good strategy when there's already way too many people outside those wagons <laughs> <laughs> outside the circle but he was opposed to the circling in the wagons uh yeah philosophy which most hunters seem to do you're either yeah. with us or you're against you're, us yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah there, I, there's a lot of stuff i i mean i, I don't i've never engaged i've never been captivated by hunting media even in the in the slightest, except for this guilty pleasure of watching a little hunting TV when I was at conferences, but just by and large, it's just never been something that was interesting to me. But now that I'm kind of taken on this role as a critic of the hunting sphere, uh, I look at some stuff on. So I look at a lot of things on social media where I'm like, if that person is a hunter then I got to come up with a different name for what I am because I don't You're want any the first person I've heard say that really. I'm going to think about that. We'll, we'll have to come up with something different then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For them or for us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, both, I guess. <laughs> All right. Well, Hey, well, thank you, uh, Matt. Yeah. I, I hope to hear from you about, I hope we stay in touch and I hope to hear from you about, uh, if you could get me in, 
touch with Dave Peterson. He sounds like somebody would be interesting to talk to as well. So. Oh, I think the world of Dave. Uh, and I will do that. I will actually email him tonight and see what he says. All right. Great. Write it down again because I got all these, I don't know, spaced out. Yeah. And I have a Labrador that's keeps jumping on me. Let me know it's time for her to go out. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, you better attend to that. Thank um, you, Matt. What a pleasure. I appreciate Yeah, back it. at you. Let's talk again. All right. Okay. I'd love to stay in touch. Let's do yeah. it. And if you're ever by around Missoula, let me know. Well, I am fairly regularly because, like I say, like my like I say, my wife is there, so I get She's over awesome. that way. Say hi yeah. to her for me. <laughs> Will do. All right. Good night. Thank you. Good night.